to conceptualize it, you have to picture someone wakes up in the morning and their agenda for that day is to find the most vulnerable person in our society that they could find and then target them and victimize them. It's really despicable. Welcome to Crime News Insider. This is Jorge Del Portillo. And with me, as always, is Lori Hoff. How are you doing, Lori? Great. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah, this is our first episode of the new year. It is January 19th, 2022. And we're going to start off the new year with a very important topic, elder abuse. Recently, I saw a tweet actually from Paul Greenwood, which uh, our guest will definitely knows. He tweeted out an article from the Wall Street Journal that reported a surge in elder abuse cases stoked by the pandemic. And I also saw in the news in Pittsburgh, there were two people that were initially arrested. Then they arrested a third one for neglecting the care of a 76-year-old woman. And they used the woman's money for personal use and admitted to not baiting her for years. Yeah, the, the police found this poor woman just completely neglected when they went into to look at her and then and then she was admitted to the hospital she had lice and pneumonia and all sorts of issues and it's really just so it's it's so terrible to know that this goes on i mean i'm in gangs right we all know that like gang members shoot other gang members it's sad it's tragic you know there are other types of cases like domestic violence is just tragic but when you talk about elders and how vulnerable they are it is really sad that um that we have elder abuse, both financial and and physical and mental mm-hmm. abuse too, and it's it um, it's really tragic that it's gone up over COVID, which we can kind of understand why, right? They're home, they're home, right? They're they're stuck at home, and their abusers have that opportunity to take advantage of it. And this is like every kid's worst nightmare that hires someone to take care of their elderly parents. And that's what happened in that Pittsburgh case. Um, and I, I was looking at the national center on elder abuse. They had some st- statistics there as of 2018, there were 52.4 million adults, 65 and over in the United States. And for the first time in 2034, it's anticipated that older Americans will outnumber children. So that presents a huge risk. And like you said, that this is a vulnerable population, you know, it is, it is. And that's why we are, we are so fortunate and happy to have our very own uh, DDA Scott Perello with us, who is head of the elder abuse prosecution unit for the San Diego district attorney's office. Yes. We will welcome uh, Scott Perillo onto the podcast right now. Scott Perillo is the head of the elder abuse prosecution unit for the San Diego district attorney's office and has been a prosecutor for 16 years Since 2009, Scott has been assigned to the Family Protection Division, prosecuting elder abuse, domestic violence, and child abuse cases. Scott now focuses exclusively on prosecuting all varieties of elder abuse, including physical, financial, sexual, and neglect cases. Scott is an expert in elder abuse enforcement, prosecution, and on the multidisciplinary team approach to elder abuse prevention. Scott Perillo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Lori and Jorge. It's uh, a pleasure. I've been a big fan of the podcast, and uh, it's about time you finally called me. Really, <laughs> you're yeah. I know you were our only fan for a while, so we're we're happy to finally have you on our show. We've been meaning to do a podcast on elder abuse, and you know it's just it's such an important part of our prosecution that we do at the DA's office. And you've been doing it for so long now. Most people rotate, right? Rotate around, do different assignments. But have you found 
found your calling? I, I think I have, and it's in it's in really the model of uh, the DA that came before me that paved the way. Uh, Jorge mentioned Paul Greenwood, uh, who really is just a you know as far as prosecutors go, a real legend in in the community, and he was in uh, the head of our elder abuse unit. Was a pioneer nationally uh, in elder abuse for over twenty years. And so I had the the distinct pleasure of kind of becoming Paul's right-hand man for many years. And yeah, it's very rare. And it's also a testament to uh, Summer Stefan and the San Diego District Attorney's Office, because, you know, very few offices nationally have even one, you know, dedicated resource mm. for elder abuse. In many offices, it is combined with some of those other categories of crimes that Jorge went through. And so, yeah, it's really a testament to our office and the commitment of San Diego County to kind of take that leadership that Paul Greenwood started many years ago and to continue the legacy by devoting a dedicated resource to it. So Scott, you know, when I think of elder abuse cases, I really think about two things that really come to mind. These scammers that are stealing money from grandparents and the neglect and the elder abuse kind of that happens at say a nursing home or something like that. Can you describe the scenario of how scammers pretend to be a family member and get the victim to wire them money? It's interesting, Jorge, that the, the elder scams are really the what everyone wants to talk about. Um, it's, it's something that impacts every one of us. Our phones are ringing all day long. Um, everyone I talk to, I go out into the community and mostly everyone has a relative that has lost money. Uh, people pull me aside. We're talking about retired members of law enforcement and they'll whisper to me that they fell for something or their mm. uh, parents did. And so it, it's a great question, but it's the greatest source of frustration for me as a prosecutor, because it's the crime that's the most prevalent, but I have the fewest prosecutions oh. in this category for, for very good reason. The, the bad guys that are committing these scams are 99.9% .9 of them are overseas. Oh. And they're outside the reach. And so uh, what we discovered is, is sadly, for far too many years, elder victims would become victimized by one of these scams. But when they come into a police station anywhere in the country, they're typically quickly recognized that uh, the scammer is, is far away in Africa or the Caribbean or, or Asia. And they're told, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do, right? The, yeah. The San Diego Sheriff or the or uh, Carlsbad Police Department can't go to Nigeria and and serve a search warrant, right? So that's that's a big issue. But but so the, the mechanism that you're talking about, which we we get hundreds of these reports a year here in San Diego, of what's commonly known as the grandma and grandpa scam, and it's a very sophisticated scam. When people first hear about it their first impulse is sometimes to laugh or giggle and say, how could anyone fall for this, right? How could you not recognize the voice of your own granddaughter? And it's so much more involved than that. And, and that's one of the things we need to work on as a community is reducing the stigma so that right. more people feel comfortable in reporting. The scammers are so good at what they do that they create a chaotic moment. And, and typically these calls the elder victim is only on the phone with the supposed grandchild for seconds. It's a hysterical person. Oh, really? Then the phone is handed over to a very smooth talking attorney. That so is, is the, 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 the scammer pretending to be the child 
in some sort of distress, like I've been arrested, I'm in this foreign country, something like that. That's why I've heard. That's exactly something it. That, okay. I mean, the classic is I've been in a car accident. I'm in Tijuana or Peru or wherever, and I need bail money. Mm. And then this smooth talking lawyer gets on the phone and takes it. So the person isn't talking to their grandchild anymore. They're talking to a, who they think is a bail agent or an attorney, and they're scaring our elder victims. And they're telling them, first of all, there's a gag order. So if you tell anyone about this, yeah. your granddaughter is even greater peril. Um, and her cell phone has already been impounded. So don't bother calling your granddaughter because it's already been taken by the judge. So wow. it creates a trap. And, and it, our, our victims who, when we talk to them afterwards, you know, are telling us that, you know, they're, they're not people with dementia and Alzheimer's. Yeah. Every one of our victims is very sharp. They're still working and driving and, and babysitting their grandkids. And so they're sharp as a tack and they cannot believe after the fact that they've fallen victim. And right. it sounds, it sounds plausible, right? I mean, well, and- it's, it's so sophisticated, right, Scott? I mean, that is, that is so extremely sophisticated, number one. And, you know, it, 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 really plays into people's greatest fear, which is, you know, family being harmed and things like that. But how much money are we talking about here? We're talking, I mean, a a standard run of the mill police report, if there is one that I see uh, is, is typically between four and $20,000 lost, maybe, maybe one in 10 of them. Uh, You know, what we, the, the literature that San Diego County puts out to prevent this, the campaign that we've run with, uh, adult protective services is don't get hooked mm. because once the scammers have the victim on the line, they will keep going back to the well. And so the grandma grandpa scam, it's very typical that the first ask is for about $10,000 in bail money. There'll then be a call later that day or the next day where the lawyer will say, this is terrible, but the, that person that your granddaughter was in a car accident with, they were pregnant. And they lost their baby yesterday. And so the charges are going to get worse. And so now you have to pay 50,000. Oh, wow. So I mean, not, and we're talking life savings for these, for, oh, for these people that will never get it back. Correct. And it's not uncommon that we see hundreds of thousands of dollars lost in these types of scams. I mean, how do you, how are we stopping that? You know, they're doing wire transfers, I assume, or people that are, like at Western Union or, or a wiring service, are they being trained? And and how is law enforcement going after these people if they can, if they're in another country? Yeah, so it's a, a great question, Jorge. And one of the biggest things that we're trying to do now is is education because it's not wire transfers. Um, okay, that is, um, and and you could look it up. A Western Union was sued maybe a decade ago because everyone was sending money on, in these Nigerian lotto scams. They lost untold sums of money. And so it, it became difficult for to send via a wire money directly from the victim overseas. And so one of the things that we're so proud of in our office is a recent collaboration, uh, the Elder Justice Task Force. And, and what we've done is, is collaborated in an unprecedented way with the FBI and uh, the Department of Justice out of Washington and the local U.S. Attorney's Office and every local police agency here in San Diego. And what we have found in actually investigating these cases and following the money trail is that the scammers overseas are depending 
on a billion dollar underground network of money launderers that are right mm. here in the United States. And so the way that they're getting our money is not uh, via wire. The predominant way is uh, either withdrawing cash and having someone go to their door and pick it up. Gift cards is really where most of the money is being uh, peddled. And so the victims, regardless of what scam they fall for, they're told to go to one of the big box retail stores and buy a few thousand dollars worth of gift cards. And then they scratch that little pin off the back and it's gone. And and I know something near and dear to your heart, uh, Jorge, is the next wave of how they're getting the money from our elders is through Bitcoin. And you might be saying... (laughs) How could my grandparents would never be sophisticated enough to buy Bitcoin, but sadly, you've probably seen a Bitcoin ATM machine in your local convenience store. Yeah, it's got that B, the, the, the symbol for Bitcoin. Jorge and- hits that all the time. <laughs> That's we talk happening. about this. He's a secret Bitcoin millionaire, I'm pretty sure. But how, you know, going back to Elder Justice Task Force, that that's new. That is new. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy that it is new, that that there wasn't this uh, cooperation among all of these agencies before, but the work that went in to getting this cooperation uh, across you know, law enforcement from the federal government to local agencies was not easy. Can you talk about just the fortitude that it took both you and the people that you're working with to get that done? Yeah, it's. It's a, a real credit to the, the San Diego District Attorney's Bureau of Investigation and uh, a district attorney investigator kind of taking this project uh, under his wing, uh, Felix uh, Salazar, and uh, the buy-in from a supervisory agent in the FBI to really kind of see the light in how we could put these cases together. And so the reality is, if you think about it historically, if we have one victim here in San Diego that loses $8,000 in one of these scams. Now for that victim, that is a traumatic event they will never get over. I've talked to these victims every day and they will never get over the impact of that. But think about it, for the FBI, um, they they don't have the the bandwidth to investigate every victim that loses $8,000, right? And so uh, the epiphany that we all had collectively was that there's no way these scammers are just picking up the phone and calling one victim in San Diego. If there's a victim in San Diego that lost $8,000, it means that around the country, there are hundreds of victims to the same scam. And the losses have to be in the millions when you do the multipliers on it. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the epiphany moment was, how do we connect the dots? And we started to connect the dots and it's been staggering uh, what we've uncovered. Jorge was mentioning some of these articles that are coming out. It's it's pretty well documented now that the losses for this nationally, just on these scams alone, is upwards of a hundred million, a hundred billion dollars. Jeez. Um, and so we thought that number, you read these articles, it, it's hard to even comprehend what that means. And so one of the goals of the Elder Justice Task Force was let's work within a local community. And, and put all of our resources together to figure out what's the number in San Diego. Maybe that's what we need to get everyone's attention because the problem seems so unfathomable when you talk 100 billion, right? So, so we're proud uh, to, that we've gotten our numbers together. Now, it's shockingly sad and 
and awful once you digest the numbers and the, the numbers are staggering in San Diego County alone. We, we believe confidently now that we have over a thousand victims a year. Wow. And you want to guess how much money um, from, so think about this from yeah. San Diego elders, bank accounts, right? These are our neighbors, our friends, our former teachers and college professors and retired professionals. How much is leaving their bank accounts and going to these scammers a year? Jorge? I mean, there's 3 million plus people in San Diego. Not all of them are elders, but if it's a hundred billion nationally, I, I would imagine, you know, just in San Diego, gosh, I can't even think over, over a million. Millions. Millions. Yeah. Millions. Yep. So we think on the low end, it's 20 to $30 million. Wow. That's in cases that we've actually been able to document and and put together um, that we know from historically looking at elder abuse, that only one in 20 or so victims even report it. So if you you put a multiple of 20 on it, it, it's, it's so staggering that you can't even comprehend it. Right. I mean, to think that there could be, you know, 50 million plus of money. Um, and so, you know, what I've been saying recently out in the community and in the media when given an opportunity is it's really staggering. There's no other category of crime mm. that is so prevalent, yet we all kind of just turn the other way and say, oh, yeah, I know someone who lost, you know, it's it's kind of bizarre in a way totally. that we all and know so, it's happening. And so with with that information, the fact that we are losing so much money to these these criminal sophisticates, right? Um, what is the message that you're giving to seniors out there to try to avoid what what seems like an inevitable thing, but sh- hopefully shouldn't be? Yeah, well, there's a few messages. The first message is don't be ashamed and embarrassed if this has happened to you. You must come forward and report it so that we know about it. Uh, You should go to your local police agency where you live and report that you've been the victim. What we're also telling people is the Elder Justice Task Force, we've developed a roadmap, but that's what it is. This is a monumental task, and it's going to take collaboration, not just from law enforcement, but from the retail industry, from the banking industry, from local, uh, county, federal government. So, you know, this is we're kind of at a tipping point now where we're just realizing that, you know, that saying it takes a village. There's never been such a, a more evident a situation. Mm-hmm. And like then, what Jorge was talking about, like, you know, it's not just, it's not just knowing about it, but then having all of those people involved trained properly to identify it and hopefully stop it. Right. That's at exactly different points. That's exactly it. And the, and the scammers are researching us. They're changing their tactics. From month to month, as we read the police reports, they, they're adding different elements to it. You know, they know in California that bank tellers are mandated reporters. So when the elder walks into the bank to withdraw $15,000 in cash, they're told that the scammer will tell the elder victim, the bank teller is going to tell you that you're being scammed. You must ignore that. And instead, you need to tell the bank teller that you are doing a home construction project and you need the money to pay your contractor wow. or, or that your grandkids are graduating college and you need graduation money. And so they, they are studying at every step how to get around that firewall. And so we have to be 
on our toes. We have to start using technology to our benefit. You know, one very practical tip people always ask me, what can we do? Um, you know, one practical tip is, you know, uh, in my own bank account, I'm signed up for an alert, a text message. Every time there's a transaction more than $300, because those are so few and far between, right? And so why not add a trusted family member to also receive a notification? They don't have to be a co-signer on your account. They don't have to know about your finances. It's just go into your local bank with your son or your daughter, and you ask the bank teller, how do I sign up my son for notifications so that if I'm ever trying to wire a large sum of money or someone withdraws more than $500 from my account, that someone else is getting word that that's happening. That's, that's not going to solve all the problems, but that's just one little practical tip. Yeah, yeah like that's it. good. That, I mean, a lot of times they're, like you said, the scammers are on the phone with them as they're in the bank and coaching them through the whole process. Gosh, I mean, we had our district attorney, Summer Stefan on, and you could hear, you know, the, the anger behind her voice. I mean, obviously she kept it cool, but I mean, these people are just like beneath humanity, I think was her words. It's just so infuriating. To conceptualize it, you have to picture someone wakes up in the morning and their agenda for that day is to find the most vulnerable person in our society that they could find and then target them and victimize them. It's really despicable. Well, I thank you for all your work on the Elder Justice Task Force. And the, and so we've been talking about the financial side of elder abuse and how expansive and how destructive it is. I wanted to see if we can move on to talk about the other types of elder abuse that, that you've seen that you do. Probably, probably, I hate to say it, but probably your bread and butter, honestly. And, and talk about the, the physical uh, mental abuse, the neglect that we're seeing among our seniors. Are, can you talk about that? Like in terms of what types of people are committing these crimes? We know who are, you know, we know generally who are doing these big financial swindling of people, but who are the people that are neglecting our seniors, abusing our seniors, physically harming them? It's a, it's a great question, Lori. And, you know, I often tell people when and I'm sure you've run into it. And Jorge, you know, when we're at the Thanksgiving table and everyone's kind of going around the table and saying, what do you do for a living? You know, you say you're a deputy district attorney. We're also proud of what we do. And it usually gets an interesting reaction. And people will say, oh, what kind of cases do you work on? And when I say elder abuse, I always get this reflexive question that their immediate reaction is, ah, who could do such a thing? And, and so I kind of use that, you know, that resonated with me all the time that people would say that. And I said, you know what, I should really have the answer to that question and be able to answer it in, a, you know, based on data. And so um, I can answer that question for you today in, on felony physical elder abuse. It's uh, upwards of 60 percent of our cases, the defendant, not the elder victim, but the defendant has some underlying mental health diagnosis. And so the, the worst of the worst cases that we see, uh, we're talking about mostly uh, schizophrenia, uh, bipolar, uh, manic depression. And then obviously the, the worst of the worst is what's referred to as dual diagnosis, where you have the mental health diagnosis coupled with an addiction, mostly to methamphetamine. That is a deadly recipe. And then it's almost also 60% of our cases are family members. Mm. So, 
you know, we get very few cases historically that are sadistic human beings that are abusing and torturing an elder person just for the sake of abusing someone, right? There's, there's usually some real decompensation and then a physical uh, assault uh, that happens as a result. And we're also seeing a rash, and this is also historical, but just recently in, in we see the news of just terrible things happening in just in the last few days on a New York City subway platform and a yeah. Los Angeles furniture store. But we're seeing a lot of random violence and elders are a huge portion of the victims to random violence out in the community. And it's, it's heartbreaking, but it's a significant amount of our caseload, complete strangers, most of them with uh, mental health concerns that randomly attack an elder. And of course, an elder victim that gets just knocked to the ground, uh, you know, someone who's in their 80s and 90s, we're, we're looking at a fractured hip, we're looking at uh, hitting their head and having a brain bleed, you know, it's a lot different than, you know, someone that's that's in their thirties or forties being knocked to the ground. I was just curious, Scott, are there any cases that you're willing to share with us or or a case that sticks out in your mind um, that, that you will always remember? Yes, there's, I mean, there's a a few that come to mind, you know, our, our office also deals with cases that deal with the just complete unthinkable uh, sexual assaults Mm -hmm. of of elderly uh, people, both, in uh, nursing facilities and and out in the community, you know, we're all kind of uh, damaged in some sense for doing this for a living. But sexually assaulting an Alzheimer's patient is uh, definitely uh, among that variety. But you know, we, but yes, uh, there's a lot of these victims. Even the financial cases, like I mentioned earlier, there's actually some tremendous research coming out of places like the National Center on Elder Abuse that actually describes financial elder abuse as a public health threat. Oh. Because the research shows, and again, it's supported by my practice and experience, the elders are never the same after they've been taken advantage of. And so this does, it hastens their their life. It, it They become less trusting. They shut themselves in. They stop going out. They They stop talking to their friends. They're so humiliated, the stress and the anxiety of not being able to trust anyone anymore. It really takes a toll. And we have their adult children telling us all the time, you know, sadly, sometimes we get to the sentencing in our cases and our victims have passed away. Mm. And, and the children are so emotional and will say to us that mom and dad were never the same after, after that happened to them. And so all those situations stay, stay with you, of course, as you, as you both know. It's just those ripples of the effective crimes. And it, it, yeah, it just not only affects the victims, but the victim's family and everything. I, one thing I did want to ask you is every unit or specialty in, in prosecution has their own challenges, say for trial. We're all trial lawyers here. So like, you know, Lori trying gang cases, I'm sure it has uncooperative witnesses and rival gang members that are victims. Uh, I would imagine elder abuse has its own significant challenges. Can you talk about that? Certainly. You know, one interesting component that that we deal with is is the competency of our victims. In California, they the definition of elder is 65. So I don't want to paint with a wide brush because some of our 
victims, people say, oh, come on, you're an elder. You know, they, they look like they're uh, in their 40s or 50s. But clearly there's a category of victim that when we're getting way up there in age, we have to deal with cognitive decline, their memory, right? And, and the uh, inability to use hearsay uh, in court. And so right. uh, we, we don't like to continue things way out when we have uh, cases involving uh, very elderly victims. Obviously, we want to try to get that victim into court to tell their story of what happened as soon as possible. You're essentially preserving their testimony, right? In case something. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Hmm. I was just going to say on the other end of that spectrum is we, we do have a dynamic similar to what domestic violence prosecutors deal with, which is we're often prosecuting a defendant for uh, victimizing their own parents physically or financially. And anyone who's a parent can can understand and empathize with someone who's even been brutally physically assaulted by their own child, that by the time that case gets into court a couple months later, that they don't want anything bad happening. They don't want their children going to jail, of course. They don't want anything negative happening. And so this is a very complex dynamic to, to work within, is being empathetic in appreciating that our victims are, are crime victims and need to be supported. And you have to acknowledge sometimes to them and bring it up directly to say, look, we might not always be on the same page here. They might not want the, the, the restraining order that the district attorney's office is going to ask for. They might be devastated to hear that. Just that simple thing that they can't talk to their son or daughter anymore for a period yeah. of time. So we have to embrace that. We have to be transparent and we have to have a lot of empathy in talking to our victims when, when family violence is involved. Yeah, absolutely. It's really complex. A lot of, lot of issues you have to navigate when you're, when you're working in elder abuse, especially when you have family members involved. Yeah, that's, that's pretty tough. Uh, I don't know how you do it, Scott, but I want to thank you for your dedication in, in this important area. And thank you for your service. 16 years as a prosecutor, your whole time pretty much as a prosecutor has been in the family protection division and, and you've been in the elder justice um, unit for a long time now. So Scott Perilla, thank you so much for your dedication to uh, these victims and to public safety. Thank you, Jorge. I appreciate it, especially from my friend and colleague who we started prosecuting DUIs together That's uh, right. 16, 16 years ago. So way back. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're both uh, elders in, in, in some people's eyes. Almost. Well, Scott, we always try to end the show, as you know, as being our number one fan who hopefully has given us a five star rating. Um, you know, we end the show on a light note where we look at the laws on the books and three are real. One is fake. And see if you could guess which one is the fake. Are you guys ready? I'm ready. I've been waiting all day for this. <laughs> all right. All right. Here we go. A in Japan, the country with the oldest population in the world. Elder abuse laws prohibit caregivers from committing psychological abuse, including negative or injurious speech. So you can see this is an elder abuse theme here. I appreciate that. B, in Niger, the country with the youngest population, it's illegal to import an elder from another country in order to collect the government's elder caregiver benefits. C, in the United States in 1986, the Grey Panthers successfully lobbied Congress to prohibit employers from in imposing a mandatory retirement at the age of 70. And D, 
in China, it's illegal to neglect or snub elderly parents. So just to recap, because these are kind of long, Japan, elder abuse laws prohibit caregivers from psychological abuse. In Niger, it's illegal to import an elder from another country to get benefits. And uh, in the United States, see the Gray Panthers, not the Black Panthers, the Gray Panthers, lobbied Congress to prohibit mandatory retirement. And then D, China, it's illegal to neglect or snub elderly parents. Scott, since you are our guest, I'll ask you to go first. So we're telling you the one that we think is false, correct? Yes. Which one do you think is false? Okay. I think that the one that is false is B, that in Niger. Okay, Niger, it's illegal to import an elder. Okay, any thoughts behind that? Well, I'm thinking that that creating a law like that would just ignore the fact that elders were being kidnapped, and <laughs> I think would be a much more serious offense than committing the potential social benefit fraud. But I do appreciate the spirit of, of that <laughs> law because it clearly, I know people in San Diego are taking advantage of those uh, same laws. Okay, I like it. Okay, Lori. Jorge, I, you, you, I think you're going to do it again. Stump us. Um, right. I think Japan, that must be true. They, they really do revere and respect elders. So I think prohibiting psychological abuse is probably correct. I think the Grey Panthers in 1986, well, they did a lot of work. I, I don't know when exactly they, they lobbied on the mandatory retirement age, but I'm pretty sure they did do that. So I think that's true. And I don't know about... I'm going to go with D China because it's so short, Jorge. And I think you just got tired of writing and made up something. So that's my, my vote. I have been known to do that. So uh, you both agree then in a Japan the country with the oldest population, elder abuse laws prohibit caregivers from committing psychological abuse, including negative or injurious speech. You both think it's a law on the books. And this one is a law on the books. Uh, I was looking into it. It's called the Elder Abuse Prevention Act went into effect in April of 2006. It prohibits obviously physical violence, neglect, uh, sexual abuse, economic abuse, but also psychological abuse. And I was looking at statistics. One in six people in Japan are over the age of 65. That's a lot. So let's go to C. You both agree in the United States in 1986, the Great Panthers successfully lobbied Congress to prohibit employers from imposing a mandatory retirement at the age of 70. You think this is a law on the books and this is a law on the books. I've never heard of the Great Panthers. I don't know. Lori, you've heard of the Great Panthers? I have, but I, I couldn't tell you when any of it happened in what particular year, which you get sneaky sometimes so that I wasn't sure. I'm embarrassed to say that I've never heard of them either. And now I, I mean, as the elder abuse prosecutor, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to hope that they're still uh, in business and we're going to get a chapter going here in San Diego. <laughs> I can't wait to see their logo. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I, you know, I should have Googled them a little bit more. Like I, they, the Silver Fox or something. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, it, yeah, they're, they're uh, a multi-generational local advocacy network. They confront ageism. They have social justice issues. And just the name Grey Panthers, I thought, might have caught one of you guys, but you didn't. So let's go to D in China. It's illegal to neglect or snub elderly parents. Lori thinks this one is the fake Scott thinks this one is real, and this one is on the books. It's real. Sorry, Lori. This was in 2013. China enacted the elderly rights law, and it deals with the growing problem of lonely elderly parents. Um, so they basically ordered adult children to visit their aging parents. And per the law, 
The duties include frequent visits and sending greetings to attend to their spiritual needs. So, and it says never neglect or snub elderly people. It's fascinating to consider for years, you know, the one child policy. And then to think that it resulted in a bunch of lonely elderly people (laughs) is shocking, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, if you go to China, don't snub any elderly people. I don't think they define what snub is, but so that all means that B, I made that up, but Niger is the country with the youngest population. 56.9% are under the age of 18, according to the United Nations. So good job, Scott. And you know, your expertise uh, came through there. <laughs> thank you. Congrats. Well, thank you so much again, Scott, for coming on the podcast and educating uh, the community and our audience out there about elder abuse prevention. And I'm going to put um, a link. You recently wrote an op-ed. We didn't even get to talk about it, but I'll put a link in the show notes for that. It's really an, an important subject. So I, I urge everyone to, to read it. Definitely. Thank you. thank you so much for all you do. Yeah. Thanks, it's been Scott. a pleasure being here. And likewise, thank you for, for what you two are doing and this great new podcast. All the best to you. Awesome. Well, tell tell your whole family, you know. Uh, <laughs> I want to say New York spike. Spike yeah, on we, the listening. We want to see this uh, Long Island spike. <laughs> well, uh, Lori, thank you as always for doing the podcast. And, oh, and we have a, uh, I set up, I'm like, you know what? I got to set up a dedicated email. If anyone wants to write in, Scott's family wants to write in, just say hi. It's crimenewsinsider at gmail.com. Check it out. Send us an email. Thank you, everyone. And until next time, this is the Crime News Insider Podcast. on this podcast are solely of the speakers and do not reflect the views of the Deputy DA Association nor the District Attorney. Questions and comments can be sent to crimenewsinsider at gmail.com. Please leave a rating and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this show. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at San Diego DDAs. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Well, I